Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser Podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And, well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. All right, welcome to the podcast today. I am grateful to have a good friend, Ambassador Aidan Little. He is the Ambassador and Permanent Representative of the United Kingdom to the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva. I hope I've got that right. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, William. Great to be with you. And today, the big issue I want to talk about is outer space security and how to address threats from outer space. So first, what do you think the major threats that we face in terms of outer space are today? I suppose the first thing to say is they're very different from how they were 40 or 50 years ago when the UN first started grappling with the question of outer space security. Um, You have a vastly increased range of of actors, both states who are new to the the space race and uh, commercial organizations, even universities are putting uh, their own space objects up into orbit now. And of course, uh, countries, whether they are spacefaring nations or not, rely on space for their national security, their economy, their social infrastructure in ways that they didn't even 20 years ago. And correspondingly, of course, we see states developing an increasing range of counter space capabilities. Uh, so capabilities that are designed to destroy or disrupt space-based services. And we see other uh, risks and threats to, uh, to to safe operation in space, just as the domain becomes more congested and uh, and, and um, you see more debris uh, being created, and it's just getting harder and harder to operate safely there. So it's it's, uh, it's a very critical problem for for international arms control, which is which is what my role here in Geneva is, and uh, it's it's an issue which I think is now taking the place it deserves on the international agenda. So there's an existing agreement. There's the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, but that doesn't really take into account these types of threats, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's tempting to say space, uh, space does not operate in a vacuum, but that's certainly true uh, both in terms of physics and in terms of law. The UN Charter applies to outer space, international humanitarian law, uh, and other bodies of international law apply to outer space. And as you say, there are specific legal agreements dating back to the late 60s and early 70s that, uh, that, that regulate certain activities or ban certain capabilities from, from space. But that was a long time ago. And as I say, space has changed a lot uh, in the intervening time. And it's, uh, it's really important that our, our legal framework and the, the agreements that we have that govern how we operate in space keep up with the times. Right, because the Outer Space Treaty bans the placement of weapons of mass destruction in outer space. Mm. That's clearly something that was intended for big states like the P5. But as you point out, space is increasingly congested, contested, and what's the third one? Competitive. And other states and non-state actors, corporations, and as you said, universities are putting things into outer space. In terms of putting an object into outer space, are there rules and standards in terms of who can put what into outer space and what the standards for that object is and how it's treated uh, once it's in outer space? Yes, um, it's it's quite a fragmented system, but there are absolutely rules and and agreements that that apply to that. 
Um, for example, if you're putting an object into geostationary orbits, the International Telecommunications Union here in Geneva um, allocates slots uh, on that very precious bit of space, uh, space real estate. There are agreements around registering objects in space. There's another of the early 70s uh, international agreements which talks about the importance of states registering objects that they're putting into space in a UN registry. There are agreements around launch notifications uh, to make sure that when you send up a rocket into space, people know it's a rocket carrying benign equipment rather than a ballistic missile, for example. So there, there are all sorts of uh, different agreements and rules that, that apply. But effectively, if you have an object in space and you, you can find somebody to launch it for you, it's, it's, uh, it's all up to you. Because I'm thinking in particular of the Hague Code of Conduct, which has a pre-launch notification requirement and a requirement on exchanging space policies. Mm -hmm. But I don't think compliance is entirely up to snuff there. I don't think we see all the objects in outer space as being pre-notified, all the launches that yeah. we're concerned about. So there must be some gaps in the governance of outer space. So what do you think the major gaps are in terms of how we have rules for outer space? Well, so as, as I say, there, there are certain legal principles that apply to outer space just as they do on Earth, and they govern things like the, the use of force uh, under the UN Charter, the right to self-defense, laws governing hostilities and protection of civilians uh, if, if conflict ever did break out uh, on Earth. So that, that there are there are definitely sort of legal rules there, and as you say, the Outer Space Treaty and, and others ban uh, certain capabilities and things in, in outer space. The big gaps really are more uh, probably less about treaties, although there are certainly calls for legally binding rules to ban the placement of all weapons, not just weapons of mass destruction in outer space. Although how you define a weapon is a difficult one, and we might come back to that. There are other ideas about uh, about other legal rules you could have. But I think what we what we see really is that outer space is lacking some some basic rules of the road. Part of that is a lot of that, frankly, is 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 civilian operators. As you said, uh, space is becoming more congested, and like any congested uh, area, you need you need traffic police and you need rules of the road to try and make sure you avoid collisions and, and arguments. But what I'm more concerned with in Geneva is the is the security aspects of that. So what behaviours can states exhibit which uh, which drive an arms race, uh, which which makes other states feel that their space systems are less secure and might impel them to take countermeasures. What activities in space might raise, what might escalate tensions, might even lead to the outbreak of conflict. What behaviours in space might create more debris? It's a time when we're trying to mitigate the threat of debris. Rendezvous and proximity operations is another um, area. So um, how how satellites behave towards each other on orbit and, and some of the problems that that can that can arise uh, that can lead to. And then there's 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 questions around data and and the the transmission links between space objects and ground stations on Earth, and they're again very vulnerable to uh, to tampering with or to disruption. All of these things are not specifically regulated by international law. There are various confidence building agreements, but there's nothing really concrete in, in many of these areas. But these are areas which, which could really lead to serious security problems if they're not, uh, if they're not addressed. So I want, to, uh, I want to raise two different efforts to address this. And then uh, I would like, if you don't mind, uh, if you describe the effort that you've been such an important part of in Geneva. 
The first one is something that for some people seems obvious, the Russian and Chinese proposal, well, let's just ban arms races in outer space, or let's ban the first placement of weapons in outer space. Can you tell me something about that effort and, and whether you think that's a useful effort or where that effort falls short? Mm. So there's, there's two aspects to this. One is the proposal that was tabled in the Conference on Disarmament, uh, I think back in 2008 originally, by Russia and China on a treaty on the prevention of placement of weapons in outer space and on the use or threat of use of force against space objects. And then there's a parallel, uh, more political track, which is which is uh, a series of countries have made commitment, political commitments, not to be the first to place weapons in outer space. So there's two, uh, two tracks. One we'll call the PPWT, the Treaty on the Prohibition of the Placement of Weapons in Outer Space, uh, and the other is, is no first placement. So these two initiatives obviously go, go hand in hand in, in many ways. The legal proposal in the Conference on Disarmament is to prohibit the placement of weapons in outer space uh, and the use or threat of use of force against space objects. Now, in, in our view, the use or threat of use of force against space objects is already prohibited under the UN Charter. Um, so you don't need specific legal rules on, on that, um, particularly not ones which might open, open new loopholes rather than closing them. But the question of the prevention of placement or the prohibition of placement of weapons in outer space is quite a, it sounds quite a tempting construct, but actually it's a very difficult one to, to really draft binding laws about, binding rules about, partly because it's, it's almost impossible to satisfactorily define what is a weapon in outer space because of the way space works, just in terms of physics. Pretty much anything in outer space can be used as a weapon if you choose to use it as such, if you, if you, ram your defunct weather satellite into somebody else's comm satellite, it, it becomes a weapon, even if it wasn't placed in orbit for that for that purpose. So there's a definitional problem, which is very difficult to get around. There's also the verification problem that any legally binding arms control instrument needs to be verifiable. Trust but verify, as the phrase has it. And unless you're going to have countries inspecting each other's satellites before they go into orbit, which is quite a big ask, I suspect, it's impossible to verify the capabilities of a satellite when it's when it's in orbit. Is this satellite a weapon or not? And if it's coming close to my satellite, should I be worried or not? So in our view, that makes it a very difficult treaty to actually draft in a meaningful and watertight way and enforce, as you, as you said, enforcement is key. The other point, of course, is that actually the placement of weapons in outer space is not a particularly pressing problem in outer space security. What we see these days, which is really worrying, is our, our other capabilities, not just kinetic capabilities, but electronic warfare capabilities, jamming, spoofing, cyber attacks, uh, laser dazzling of sensors. There are lots and lots of capabilities out there, many of which are Earth-based, which are, in our view, far more threatening to stability and security in outer space than the prospect of placing a conventional weapon on orbit, which, as far as I know, is, is, not, uh, is not really a, a, a very sort of credible military uh, military technology. I actually did some research on this. The uh, Soviets actually put a gun up in outer space. Uh, it was one of the guns mm -hmm. from one of their heavy bombers, and they thought that that would be a good idea. But it just seemed so ludicrous that, that even they decided that, that was not a particularly useful thing. Because as you point out, it's, it's rendezvous in proximity. I mean, mm -hmm. first of all, any outer space object has to get there on something that looks an awful lot like a missile. Um, and second of all, you can go back to 2001 A Space Odyssey. You can take a repair satellite and use it to rip something apart. So right. yeah, definitions on weaponry, uh, if you're going to destroy or disrupt a satellite, you don't need a missile or a cannon or something dedicated, anything that can move an object kinetically, or as you point out, 
directed energy. I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can damage or disrupt or destroy satellites that you wouldn't need an actual dedicated weapon system the way we think of weapons. Absolutely. I mean, we've already mentioned the uh, the, the problem of debris. This is something that uh, that is a, a big threat to the safe operations of commercial and, and other operators in space. And so lots of companies, universities are developing what they call active debris removal systems. So these are things with grappling hooks to pull debris out of uh, out of orbits or their net to try and sweep debris away from active orbits. All of these things are benign and, and, and good. They're, they're clearing up the space environment. But if you can grapple a defunct satellite out of an orbit, stop it knocking into something else, you can probably grapple uh, an active and sensitive satellite away from its orbit. So, you know, what exactly the same technology, exactly the same capability can be used for benign or for, for hostile purposes. Uh, and therefore, trying to define a weapon for a, for a legal treaty in space is a very, very difficult proposition. So it becomes more about the behavior and not trying to identify a particular type of weapon and then ban that weapon. Exactly. It's not it's not the capability you've got in space. It's how, it's how you use it and how you behave. That, that that's, that's really the security paradigm. What about there's been another effort uh, on transparency and confidence building measures uh, in outer space. How do you think that's going? And what are the benefits and shortcomings of that approach? So it's a, it's a very useful approach. Um, it's been around for a few years. And the idea of transparency and confidence building measures in other domains, of course, is, is a very well established and very helpful one. There was a United Nations group of governmental experts in 2013 that came up with a set of recommendations on this, which was then endorsed by the General Assembly by, by consensus. So these are these are sort of standards that have already been agreed or actions that have already been agreed. Many of them are still very useful. Not many of them, unfortunately, have really been put into action, at least not universally. So again, things like launch notifications, exchanges of data, briefings on space policies, all these sorts of things, you know, these are still very much relevant and, uh, and, and valid and could be better used, I think. But I think even even transparency and confidence building measures, they certainly have a role to play. But but I think we need something uh, more concrete, which really gives states standards they can hold each other right. to. And, that, and that's what brings me then to this effort that you've been such a big part of the open-ended working group on reducing space threats through norms, rules, and principles of responsible behaviors. Because it strikes me that even an effort towards Paros or PPWT, even efforts towards transparency and confidence building measures are nice, but it's the context. It's what are the rules and norms? What is the context within which we're trying to decide what to do with outer space? And certainly on the high seas and in international airspace, we have very much articulated sets of rules, certainly how civilian and commercial aircraft and ships interact with each other, the rules on government to government encounters as well, and military to military encounters. Uh, but we don't have that for outer space. So can you tell me a little bit, what is this effort? How did it start? And where are we now on the open-ended working group? So this started uh, back in 2019, I think it was, where you know, the UK, um, in discussion with a few other countries, looked at the state of international space diplomacy, particularly on the security side. On the civilian side, the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space in Vienna had just agreed a set of long-term sustainability guidelines designed to mitigate debris, uh, the threat of debris and the risk of debris and that sort of thing. And and we realized that that really the, the stalemate, at the, which was prevailing at the time, really wasn't sustainable. So we had this proposal on the table from Russia and China. Many countries had said, look, this just isn't going to work. This is not really a basis for negotiation. It's not addressing the real problems. But we hadn't necessarily said, well, okay, if not that, then then what? And so 
we we took it back to first principles. And if the if the state's aim in the UN system is to prevent an arms race in outer space, you have to look at what the drivers for that arms race might be. You have to look at the existing international legal framework. You have to look at what the threats are now and 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 what the perceptions, how different countries perceive those threats, because these are all things that drive what might turn into into an arms race, which is what we're trying to avoid. So we uh, we we held a couple of workshops. We developed uh, developed some ideas. We uh, we tested the water with a statement at the uh, the General Assembly in in 2019 with a small group of countries to signal that we were working up a new uh, a new approach. And in 2020, we tabled the first um, resolution on reducing space threats through norms, rules, and principles of responsible behaviours. And the the premise of this new approach was first to get away from thinking about space threats in terms of capabilities for the reasons I've just been talking about, dual use problem, and focus more on behaviors. So how, how you operate, how you act, how you use the capabilities in outer space. The second area of difference was to say, well, all right, if, if some of these definitional problems are what's standing in the way of a negotiation on a treaty, then let's look at some of the other tools we have in our diplomatic and legal and political toolbox. So we have political commitments, unilateral commitments, or non-legally binding standards that you might agree, or guidelines, or codes of conduct, and these sorts of these sorts of instruments. Maybe not a, com- a comprehensive, all-encompassing instrument, but but perhaps you know specific tools to do specific jobs or tackle specific problems. So uh, not ruling out a legal treaty, but understanding that treaties take a long time and space is, is evolving very quickly and, and the threats we, we see are, are real and there now. They, they can't wait for, for some of these technical legal problems to be solved. So that was the second issue. And the third issue was that a lot of these discussions on outer space have happened in small rooms over the years in the UN. So as I say, the, the draft PPWT was tabled in the Conference on Disarmament, which has 65 members. We've had groups of governmental experts on TCBMs, but also on developing elements for treaties on space, which are limited to 25 members usually. There are 193 members of the uh, of the UN General Assembly, and many of those countries, even if they weren't space-bearing nations 30, 40 years ago, they either are now or they're aspiring to be in the future. And if they're not space-bearing nations or have the ambition to do, then then they rely on on services that others provide. So these conversations need to be inclusive. They need to they need to bring in all states and they need to bring in academia, civil society, industry and others with a perspective on these things as well. So for those for those three reasons, uh, we thought that a new a new approach based around those three premises was timely. And um, luckily, the General Assembly agreed and the resolution was passed by over 160 votes in favor. Okay, so that was the December 2020 resolution, which set out to examine the question a little bit more deeply and structure a process? So the first one was, was in 2020. Uh, so that was setting out the, the outlines of this new approach and, and, and launching a consultation process effectively with states that the UN, General, uh, the UN Secretary General conducted. Yeah, and then on the basis of that consultation, we came back in 2021 to propose the creation of a working group to, uh, to take the issues forward and, and look at them in more depth. And then the OEWG was set up by the, by the, the follow-up resolution in, in December 2021. I see. And so that set up the actual open ed working group, and that's met four times so far. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. So the uh, so the open ended working group started work uh, at the beginning of 2022. Um, it held four week long sessions, and the the last one wrapped up just uh, at the beginning of September. We're going to take a quick break. 
When I come back with Ambassador Aiden Little, we'll continue our conversation. You're listening to William Albert on the Arms Control Poser Podcast. And uh, so what have you seen so far through this process? How have nations been engaging? Have you seen a change from 2022 to 2023? Has there been some momentum building here or is there still skepticism? What's, what's it like in the room? It's been incredibly positive in the room. And we were, obviously, this was a new process. There was obviously some skepticism, as there always is, about new processes. Uh, this was a, not an entirely new concept. I mean, we've been talking about responsible state behavior in the cyber domain for a few years now, but applying this to outer space to a more traditional arms control domain, or at least a domain where there have been proposals for more traditional arms control, you know, this, this obviously a lot of countries were, were not quite sure where this was going and um, needed, to be, needed to be convinced. But still, as I say, a critical mass of countries were prepared to, to see where this led to uh, and, and to lend their support to, to this process. The process started by taking stock of the existing international legal framework. It seems astonishing, but for the last 40 years, we've never had a, an all-inclusive discussion in the UN about the laws, the existing legal framework in outer space um, involving everybody. So that was, we thought, a pretty essential starting point. The second week of work looked at the threats that states perceive in, in outer space. And that was really a sort of information sharing exercise, really. You know, what capabilities are out there? How are they used? You know, how do they help or, or, or complicate um, international stability and peace in outer space? The third session then looked at possible solutions, so norms, rules, and principles for, of responsible behaviors that might help address some of those threats. And then the fourth week was, uh, was supposed to negotiate some, some consensus conclusions back to the General Assembly. And really throughout this process, we saw an increasing level of engagement and, and, and in some cases even excitement, I think, among states as they, as they listen more, they learn more about the process, they got the chance to hear perspectives that they hadn't heard before. We had briefers in from industry and civil society and academia, and people like the International Committee of the Red Cross who, who come at this from a very sort of uh, technical legal perspective, satellite operators and owners. And, you know, it was a collective learning process. And I think a lot of countries really really sort of understood what we had been saying about the importance of this framing. And so by the end of it, there were there were groups of countries who'd never really got involved in space negotiations in, in the UN before, who were joining statements saying how valuable the process had been, putting forward their own proposals for possible norms of responsible behavior, and calling for the, the process to, to carry on. So it was incredibly energizing. And although the process ended without a formal set of conclusions, which had to be negotiated by consensus, which is what we expected, to be honest. The fact that so many countries got involved, the fact that so many new ideas were generated uh, was really, really exciting and energizing. Well, I'm very excited to hear about that. And I want to hear uh, especially about uh, how we take this work forward. But can you tell me, how did industry engage in this process? I mean, obviously, as you mentioned, this is a process for 193 countries. But of course, there are certain space actors that have space programs larger than a lot of countries. How do they engage in this process? How do we take them into account in an open-ended working group? Like so this? the great thing about an open-ended working group formula is, is, is that although it's a subsidiary body of the UN General Assembly, which obviously is a very sort of rule-bound, process-heavy organization, uh, open-ended working groups have quite a lot of flexibility as to how they're used. And we were very lucky to have uh, an incredibly experienced and skilled uh, diplomat from Chile, Helmut Lagos, chairing the process. 
who'd been in, uh, involved in space negotiations in the UN going back decades, understood the issues really well, but also was a, a very, very expert diplomat who could build relationships, who could use process to facilitate conversations rather than to hinder them. And he designed a process working with the UN Secretariat, which was based around having expert briefers introduce a certain subject for every day of the of the meeting. So he would he would allocate a, a subtopic under each of these broad headings for each each day of work across the week. Uh, he would invite then a, a series of panelists to come in, as I say, from industry or from academia or from civil society to brief on the problem as they saw it or the perspective on the issue. There would then be a discussion of, um, involving states, uh, member states, but also other civil society participants who had been invited to attend as observers to have a question and answer with the panelists to, to exchange their views on what they've been told. And then in the afternoon, we'd move into a more formal member state driven process where we'd actually put our proposals on the table and uh, and, and discuss the issues and, and try and develop solutions. So it was an incredibly dynamic, open process. Uh, and some of the presentations we heard from companies and academics uh, working on this from all over the world was was really stimulating. That's great. So you really did get to get them in the room while still having a process that's ultimately driven by nations. So that's, that's a great that's way right. handling that. And by the way, I should truth in advertising. Uh, I was there for the third session and I actually submitted a paper on behalf of IISS and some nations that we had consulted with as well. So I, I'm grateful for that. And I do think it has been an incredible process. I also watched uh, with great interest as all of this has been online. Many of the sessions have been uh, live and I thought the chairman did a fantastic job really great in in trying to manage a room that sometimes there were a couple members there who seemed a little bit disruptive. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, in particular, I thought Russia, China, Iran, some other countries had some opposing views. Can you talk a little bit about how they've interacted in this process? Sure, absolutely. But before I do that, let me also just mention quick, quick sort of advertising that the open-ended working group website is, is, is still up on the UNODA, UN Office for Disarmament Affairs website. And I think all of the presentations and papers from states and from IISS and other great organizations, they're all up on the website as well. So anybody can go and look at this great wealth of material. Absolutely. And we'll have Right. We'll have links to that. So uh, yeah, we can, you can watch the video. As much of the video is online, uh, yeah, we'll have links to that in the program notes. Mm. So that's a great reminder. Well, we'll have that for viewers who want to read all the national submissions, the international organization submissions. And yeah, it's a, I think it's going to be a, it's a, great a really valuable resource, I think, uh, um, over the next few years. Coming to the question about, uh, about the states who perhaps weren't as invested in the process as, as we were. As I say, you know, at the beginning of this, there was, there was definitely some skepticism around about whether this was really going to be a, a fruitful process and a, and a way of really moving us forwards. As I say, most countries who had expressed that skepticism were prepared to give it a go. And I think most of them have been pleasantly surprised uh, and, and, and motivated as we were by, by the success of the process. But there were still a few big countries who, who, who remain skeptical. Some of them, for example, India, Israel, you know, abstained on the original resolution. But they brought big delegations, they brought experts into the room, they engaged really meaningfully in the process, and I think hopefully got, got a lot out of it. There were some other states who were much more clearly opposed to what we were trying to do. You mentioned Russia, China, Iran, they all voted against the resolution setting up the OEWG. I think China had a, a more nuanced position than the other two. I think, again, they were very skeptical and they saw perhaps this process as being something that would move them away from what they had considered a priority before. 
But equally, you know, China is one of, if not the leading space power now. And I think they see the need for a proper dialogue on outer space security. They see the need for sort of rules of the road as as to how you're going to manage some of these issues uh, as they emerge. So we've had some really good dialogue with China. Um, So even if they remain to be convinced that this is the process to achieve the results that we all want, they've at least uh, engaged with it. And we've had some really good conversations with them about it. Russia was, I think it's fair to say, more clearly hostile to the process. That was apparent right from the beginning, where they tried to block the participation of observers and uh, stop uh, people like the International Committee of the Red Cross from even speaking in the formal sessions, right through to the end, where it was really just their opposition that, that stopped us not only negotiating a, a substantive set of recommendations on the on the issues, uh, but even from having a procedural report just noting to the General Assembly that we met as we were instructed to. Wow which is pretty extraordinary behavior by by any standards in the international community and was incredibly disappointing. But as I say, we, we took great positivity from everybody, everybody else in the room and, and it was clear that uh, the vast majority of states were very disappointed by that sort of disruptive uh, behavior. Yeah, surely, as you point out, for China as a, as, a, as a huge player in outer space, they're going to need to rely on rules and norms. And Russia, also uh, notable for its historic space program, Surely they would benefit from rules and norms. And by holding out for only a legally binding treaty that's only going to address some aspects seems kind of an odd flex when they could go for the lesser and included important things that could eventually build towards a treaty at some point. Is this just Russia being obstreperous or is there, was there, is there a principled position behind opposition to the work as you describe it? I mean, you just have to ask them. But I, I, I agree with you entirely that this, this is in everybody's interests and you know, if our collective goal is to prevent an arms race in outer space, to, to prevent conflict in outer space, which would have disastrous consequences, you know, it's, it's in all of our interests to come up with a modus operandi on how we all operate in this increasingly contested and very fragile domain. So the reason that when we wrote the resolution, we set up the working group to operate by consensus was for precisely that reason, to show that we were serious about having all of the issues on the table, you know, even ones we disagreed with, they all had to be part of the negotiation, they all had to be represented. And deciding to operate by consensus, which we didn't have to, was designed to try and and signal our our good faith and intent about that. And it was the consensus rule, of course, that was that was used in the end to to really exercise one country's veto on on even a procedural outcome. But you know, we our, our enthusiasm remains un, undimmed. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna keep on trying. Uh, we're gonna keep on trying to talk to Russia about this and others who are who are who are skeptical about it. And and I hope we will convince them that that this is the way to get what we all say we want. Well, so two other big questions for you. First of all, what is next in this process? Because I mean, you have agreement for these open-ended working groups. You have this report, but it was not adopted by consensus. So what happens next? And then the other question I have for you just to think about while we're, while we're talking about that, is what were the headline rules and norms that you think would form the basis for uh, some kind of future agreement or discussion on rules and norms? So, so first, what is next? So what's next is we have to go back to the UN General Assembly in a few weeks to, uh, to report on what we've done. Uh, obviously, we don't have a consensus report that we can submit as a formal document, but as I said, there is a huge wealth of this material that's there and official and uh, still exists and will always exist. Our chair is going to write his own summary of the of the work that we've done. So that will be a, an immensely important resource as well. 
and so, so chairman's report will, will that go to UNGA or will that just be on the uh, website what happens to the chairman's it, report? It, it'll be a working paper of the oewg so um, it'll still sort of exist in that uh, in that library of resources that we've developed over over the course of the process great and so we'll bring that all back to the first committee of, of the general assembly the, the disarmament international security committee we will table a resolution that talks about the value of the work that we've done and that sets a, a path for continuing that work. In a way, the, this phase of the OEWG was about mapping the problem, as I say, in terms of surveying the existing legal framework, the threats, starting to talk about some of the areas in which we think this, this approach might help. And I think the next phase will be trying to narrow down into actually discussing what these norms, rules and principles might look like. Mm-hmm. They're going to be in areas of work like destruction or, or disruption of, of space objects. It'll be on things like data, as I said, signals. It'll be on things like rendezvous and proximity operations. There were probably half a dozen different areas of, uh, of interest which, which seem to gather very widespread support uh, in the work of the group. So, uh, uh, so this is what we want to try and focus on in the next phase. So you're hoping that the UN General Assembly will vote for another round of open-ended working groups? I hope so. I mean, that's up to the General Assembly, of course, to decide uh, how to take this forward. But that was certainly the call that, that we heard loud and clear in the room at the end of this working group. So uh, we're reflecting on how to move that forward. But, but that's certainly certainly where we where we see the momentum. And fingers crossed, you don't want to jinx anything, but it sounds like if there was support to get this far and support in the room seems to have been growing and a more shared realization that this work is good, quite possibly you could have a, a good vote coming on. Or would you expect a vote at the UN General Assembly First Committee or would it just be another set of consultations moving towards open-ended work? Um, I, th- I think that remains to be seen. Um, we, need to, we need to obviously consult with people. It's only a few days after the end of the working group and we need to see where, where the land lies. But, uh, but as I say, we, we heard the call expressed in the room for, for another open-ended working group to delve deeper into these issues. So we're very, very encouraged by that. Is there any specific work that you think could happen that would support this process? Are there any areas where there's just either there's not shared information, a shared understanding, or where there just legitimately hasn't been the work done to date that would support the development of a solid and very well-defined rules or norms? So I, I think through this process, we did a lot of work on the on the legal aspect to understand what is already prohibited by international law, what might not be prohibited by international law, but would be a very bad idea. Just because something's legal doesn't mean to say you should do it. And so we, we've already got a good sense, I think, of the, of the, of, of the areas, as I say, in which this, uh, this responsible behaviours approach might be, might be helpful. I guess what we need to do more work on is probably exactly what those norms, rules and principles might look like, what form they would take. Would they be political commitments? Would they be legally binding instruments? Would they be TCBMs? How would you express them? What process do you need to try and develop these these ideas? So there's still a lot of practical work to be done. And I think what we need to do is to draw on not only the resources of, of member states, and obviously there's great expertise uh, in, in many countries, but we also need to draw on the expertise of, of operators, commercial operators, of international security specialists and thinkers, uh, legal experts um, and, and engineers and, and, and others. You know, this is this is a cross-disciplinary effort. So uh, while, while we've while we've done a lot over the first four weeks, uh, there's the, we've really only just surfaced the problems. So this strikes me as, a, I mean, if I'm looking at outer space and how we would like to see an end state, for me, legally binding treaties, sure, fine. But we don't see that in air and sea. We see 
sets of international agreements and rules and bilateral agreements and regional agreements, thinking of the avoidance of hazardous incidents at sea agreements, which are a set of bilateral agreements. There was actually an effort in the negotiations of those to make that a multilateral agreement, but it was actually a desire to get away from US-Soviet bilateral agreements that prevented that from becoming real agreement. But you do look at ICAO, you know, the International Civil Aviation Organization, or other authorities like that, because eventually it strikes me that you're going to need to have some sort of shared space situational awareness, like we have with the air domain or the maritime domain. And we're going to need at some point some kind of space traffic management where countries can say, hey, you know, get out of the way or I have right of way or, you know, I need assistance or things like that. Do you see that as a potential end state? Yeah, eventually. I mean, as you say, you know, we've seen in other domains like air and and sea that you don't have to have a a legal treaty to, to make the domain safer and to avoid these sorts of incidents. And in some ways, although many countries see a legal instrument as being the gold standard, being the ultimate goal, and we respect that. In our view, we shouldn't let uh, arguments over the form an instrument should take over actually getting on and deciding what sort of behaviors we want to promote or, or discourage. And then if these things lend themselves to a treaty, then great. But if not, we want the flexibility of political instruments. We want to be able to evolve them over time. If they're more conducive to opening channels of communication rather than setting hard and fast legal rules, then that's fine too you know, whatever, whatever works. So yeah, we certainly see that, you know, the, these are all possible futures. And uh, it's a really exciting process to be involved in, in developing that. Oh, that's great. And so all eyes to the UN General Assembly First Committee in a few weeks in October here in 2023. And Aiden, best of luck in this effort. I think you've done incredible work here. And I'm really grateful to have you on the podcast. So thanks for talking to us about the outer space rules and norms effort i think it's been really useful thanks for having me it's been it's been a great process and and thanks to you or uh, thanks to you for, for for your support personally to uh, to, to what we've been trying to do as well it's been been, uh, been great all right great and when we come back in a minute we'll talk a little bit about master uh, little's life and career so back in just a second All right, coming back for part two of the podcast, uh, where I ask Ambassador Little, how did he get here today? Um, so, Aiden, please uh, tell me. Uh, so first, where, let's start at the very beginning. Where were you born? I was born in the city of Newcastle-upon-Tyne in northeastern England. And, and were you interested in arms control topics from a young age, or is that something that you got much later in college or later in your career? So that came a lot later. I mean, when so I, I studied I studied classics at university, so uh, ancient Latin, Greek uh, literature, philosophy, history, and I had always been interested in languages and culture and 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 history uh, and politics. And I I was lucky enough to get an internship uh, working at the British Embassy in Bucharest, Romania, um, during my last summer as an undergraduate, and I was absolutely hooked on the idea of diplomacy as a career. After university, I went to work for our trade ministry for a couple of years and then and then got into the foreign office. And I've actually spent most of my diplomatic career working on issues to do with Europe, uh, both bilateral relations with European countries, but also our policy towards the European Union, which has uh, evolved quite considerably in the 20 years I've been, uh, been a member of His Majesty's now diplomatic service. So actually, I came to arms control and international, commu- uh, international security quite late in my career. Um, I came to this job in Geneva five years ago, but I came to it very much as a, as a multilateral negotiator. 
drawing on my my EU experience and, and really the, the arms control and security subject matter was new to me. Were you working on other European security issues like NATO and the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe and the Dayton Accords and the other, or, or were you more focused uh, on the European Union itself? Yeah, I've never been directly involved in those, but of course they they all you know play a part in the in the context for our, our relationships with uh, with the European continent. Most of my direct experience on of European negotiations was more on economic issues, and but I also did a bit of work on EU foreign policy. But obviously, in terms of dealing with our bilateral relationships with uh, with European countries, which I was working on for, for several years, clearly. Our, our relationships within the EU were very important, but our relationships with other European countries through NATO and through the OSCE and other instruments was also also a really important part of, of, of that. Well, going back to Bucharest, so was this just a program that you had at your university where you could apply for internships or were you selected to this? Do you know someone? Was a professor engaged in this or something? No. So actually, I was tipped off by a friend of mine uh, who was who was leaving for the world of work a year earlier than, 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 than I was and picked up the flyer at the careers office and, uh, and, and passed it on to me. But no, it was, it was a foreign office scheme. It was called the, uh, the Overseas Undergraduate Attachment Scheme. And you could apply to the, to the foreign office to do a, a sort of six-week, two-month internship in, a, in an embassy somewhere in the world. So I, I applied for it just because it sounded a pretty good way to spend my summer, and, and I've never looked back. <laughs> and uh, what about getting into the civil service itself? Did you take the exam, or was there a position opened, or how, how, how do you do that in uh, the UK? So you, you apply to a general competition. I mean, occasionally you do get specific jobs which are opened up to external recruitment, but, but by and large, most people, particularly at the beginning of their career, come into the civil service through a, a general competition. Uh, so we have something called the, the fast stream, which is the, the main graduate entry. But uh, it, we, we also had a mainstream entry point when I was doing it. And I, ca- I came in through through the mainstream entry point. So there was uh, the, the fast stream you apply generally, but you if you want to join the foreign office or a couple of other departments, you have to put them at the top of your list with the home civil service being a, another option. For the mainstream, actually, I applied direct to the to the foreign office, but it was a sort of general graduate recruitment scheme for the foreign office. So I, I did all the aptitude tests and the psychological assessments and the uh, the exams and did a terrifying interview on whether the UK should join the European single currency or not. Oof. And for reasons best known to the foreign office, they decided to take me on. But it, it took me a couple of goes. It was uh, it was a very, very competitive and, and tough process. So you had to sit a couple of times. This wasn't just one and done and you were in. Oh, yeah. No, I, I, th- I think I I think I got in on the on the fourth time of asking. So once you got in, uh, you were doing more economics and political relations, not the hard security defense yeah. issues. Yeah, that's right. So I started off in, in the European Union department looking at um, EU trade and aid relationships with, with Asia and Latin America. Uh, and that was really my first, my first exposure to, to multilateral negotiations. I was involved in preparing the EU Latin America summit in, in Guadalajara in 2003, I think it was. And that was, that was my first exposure to, to international negotiation. And then later I went to work in our mission in Brussels, negotiating internal market directives and uh, yeah, um, took it from took it from there. And what about Geneva? How did you get How did you get that particular post? Was that just did you bid for a, you know in the U.S. system you bid for a couple posts and they put you where they need yeah. you, or did you really go for that one? Did you did you pull strings? How, how did that <laughs> actually work to get over to Geneva? So it's it's, it's a similar thing. Uh, we, we overseas jobs you know, go on boards a certain amount of times a year, and you have to bid for a certain number of jobs and rank them in order of preference, and then a complicated system in HR, which I don't fully understand, makes makes everything add up or not. 
So, so after after Brussels, I went to our uh, our High Commission in Islamabad. Um, I was the, the the press attaché for the for the High Commission there, um, which did give me a bit more exposure to to some of the hard security things that we were dealing with there. Um, this was the height of the intervention in Afghanistan and concerns about extremism and, uh, and terrorism, but also you know a, a exposure to a to a hugely rich and complicated bilateral relationship that we have with, with with Pakistan. Then I came back to London, worked on some corporate issues for a while, and then got back into the, the Europe directorate. Yeah. And then I went as deputy head of mission, uh, so I'm the number two in the embassy uh, in Stockholm, uh, where I had four, four very happy years, again, working on mainly European issues. But again, because Sweden is, is, is a, a very key player in, in, in foreign security policy, uh, I, I got involved in that as well. Um, this was, again, around the time of the, the chemical weapons attacks in Douma and then in Salisbury. So, yeah. you know, I was working with, with our Swedish partners to, to coordinate our response to those issues. And, and of course, the debate on Sweden's NATO membership was, was bubbling underneath as, as well, even, even back then. So I, again, I got sort of exposure to some of these issues. And then at the end of my time in Stockholm, I wanted to carry on negotiating. I wanted to, to get back into the multilateral uh, space, broaden my experience out to, to the UN environment to add that string to my bow. This job came up in Geneva, and, and uh, I, this was the only one I applied for. In fact, I, uh, I, I absolutely had to have it. And I'm, I've been delighted to have, uh, to have succeeded ever since. Well, I feel really lucky I was able to work with you uh, from my perch when I was out at NATO. Uh, you've been a really great um, colleague this whole time. Uh, let me just close with one more question for you. Uh, is there any advice that you would go back in time and give yourself at any point during your career trajectory that would have helped, that would have changed things, that, that you just, if you had to do it over again, you'd say, do it this way, not that way? Or are you pretty happy with how everything turned out? I am pretty happy with how everything turned out. I've done I've done a series of fascinating jobs, very varied. I've worked with some brilliant people, including yourself, uh, in in lots of different parts of the world. Uh, I've worked on some issues which are you know hugely important. Um, and of course, the great joy of working in in government is that you get to work with decision makers. Uh, you know, you really see how politicians make decisions and and and, and how these uh, how these incredibly complex issues are dealt with. I guess one thing I would say to my younger self, though, is is don't fret about having a plan. You know, these these careers are, are long. Um, mine is is shorter now than it was at the beginning, or the future is shorter than it was at the beginning. But you can afford to sort of sit back and take it all in and enjoy the view at, at times as well. It's not just about getting on the next rung of the ladder and getting the next thing. You know, it's uh, it's an incredibly privileged career being a diplomat representing your country and working with these issues. And wherever the career takes you, it will open up new vistas and introduce you to new people and issues that you'd never thought of before. And it's, a, it's an incredibly rewarding career. Well, I think that is a great bit of advice and a great place to leave it. So Ambassador Aidan Little, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for talking to us and have a great day. Thank you so much. That about wraps it up for the episode. My thanks once again to Ambassador Aidan Little for being with us today. Thanks also to the European Union Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding this effort, and also thanks to B. Aubrey Freeman for the wonderful music. We'll put links to his Bandcamp as well as to other key websites that we mentioned in the episode in the program notes. Until next time, I've been William Alberg, your arms control poser. Thank you. I repeat again. I repeat again.
repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again.